Please be seated and good morning again. It goes without saying that you and I live in a time and in a culture that are characterized by some very strong negative trends. Godlessness, selfishness, apathy, confusion, restlessness, anxiety, uncertainty, and cynicism. That's quite a laundry list, isn't it? All of them undergirded by a generally frantic pace of life, as well as by countless influences competing for our time and our attention. In a lot of ways, many of the same things could be said of the ancient Israelites at the point that we find them in today's Old Testament reading from the 24th chapter of the book of Joshua. The Israelites at this point in time were in a condition of spiritual malaise that was about to give way to a genuine crisis. The crisis was Joshua's imminent death. Sometimes life does put us in a position of confusion and frustration and bewilderment brought on by crisis points in our lives, such as the death of a loved one, the painful ending of a relationship, serious rebellion by a child, a life-threatening illness, or a ser even a, si a serious financial setback. And those crisis points, though, are the times when we most need to reaffirm our covenant with God and our commitment to serve Him. And the strength of your commitment to God is displayed most prominently in the way that you live your life. With that as an introduction, let's look at our text this morning, again from Joshua 24. The scene that's recorded here took place 70 years after the Israelites' exodus from Egypt, 70 years. That exodus, of course, was followed by 40 years of wandering in the wilderness under the leadership of Moses. And Moses, along with every one of those several million Hebrews who had originally left Egypt, died before entering the Promised Land. Everyone, that is, except for two men, Joshua and Caleb, who, because of their unswerving faith in God, had been preserved in order to allow them to see and enter the promised land with the children and the grandchildren of all of those who had left Egypt 70, uh, 70 year, 40 years earlier. Joshua picked up the leadership of the Hebrews when Moses died, and it was he who led them across the Jordan River and into the promised land, into the land of Canaan. It was he who valiantly led them in their conquest of all those tribes and people that inhabited the land that God had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to their descendants forever. Those had been exuberant times when the people saw the hand of God moving mightily on their behalf. Times when their faith was enkindled day by day by greater and greater exploits of God's immeasurable might they were times when the Israelites were tough, both physically and spiritually. But now, it's 30 years since they crossed the Jordan River. And the children of Israel have discovered that it's one thing to conquer the land, 
and quite another thing to dwell in it. In other words, it's one thing to serve God when you see Him moving mightily in your life and on your behalf, but quite another thing to continue to serve Him in the quiet tedium of day-to-day -day life. And sadly, an insidious double-mindedness had infiltrated the spirit of Israel. They were restless, they were unsettled, they were indecisive in their commitment to Yahweh. Many of them had capitulated to the false gods of Canaan, engaging in pagan practices and deliberately assimilating the polytheism of their pagan neighbors. But the vast majority of the Israelites were simply wishy-washy, lukewarm, trying to have it both ways and following the path of least resistance. What a lesson for us today. In stark contrast to both of these two groups, those who had sold out to paganism and those who were indecisively straddling the fence, stands Joshua. From the very beginning, when he and Caleb had stood alone in affirming their trust in Yahweh 70 years earlier, through all the 40 years of wandering and the 30 years of conquering the land, Joshua has been a rock of faith and courage. And even now, at the age of 110, with death appro approaching, this grizzled old warrior takes yet another bold stand as a final public act of honoring the God to whom he has been ever faithful and who has never let him down. Joshua summons all of Israel to a place called Shechem. And just as Moses, his predecessor, had done when he reached the end of his life, Joshua, as we read in verses 2 through 13 of Joshua 24, Joshua re rehearses in the hearing of his countrymen all that Yahweh had done for them, going all the way back to the patriarch Abraham. And for one final time, he reminds Israel that all of these things happened not because of their own might, but because of the might and the faithfulness of the one true and living God. And then having set the stage for the challenge he is about to issue to Israel, this ancient battle-hardened faithful servant of God stands before the people and he utters these riveting words in verses 14 and 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if you be unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me, and my house, we will serve the Lord. In our gospel passage this morning, in John chapter 6, we hear St. Peter say to Jesus, immediately after many of the disciples had left Jesus, never to walk with him again because they were so offended at his teaching on the Eucharist, we hear Peter say to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. And so Joshua challenges the Israelites then to do three things. And it's these same three things that I would like for us to be challenged with this morning. First of all, Joshua says, fear the Lord. I would submit to you this morning that in the midst of the godless and spiritually insane culture in which we live, a culture which looks the other way as millions of unborn babies are savagely destroyed in the womb and their body parts sold for profit, a culture which celebrates sodomy and calls it marriage, a culture which allows individuals to arbitrarily define their own gender from an indeterminate number of genders, one of the most desperate needs of Christians in this culture today is a renewed and healthy sense of the fear of the Lord. The single thing, in fact, that our culture lacks most, I would suggest, is a healthy fear of God. By the way, we could say the same is true of those priests and bishops guilty of sexual abuse. They lost their fear of God, if in fact they ever had it. Now this concept of the fear of the Lord may well be one of the most misunderstood truths in all of the Bible. Many who would give it only a casual consideration might object mistakenly that it's purely an Old Testament concept, much like the oversimplified false dichotomy that says that in the Old Testament, God was the God of fear, but in the New Testament, He's the God of love, as if there's two different gods involved here. Then there's the problem with the word itself, fear, fear. We kind of water down the truth when we say, for example, that the fear of God doesn't really mean fear, but merely reverence. Now, reverence is certainly an indisposable element of the fear of the Lord. But whenever the term shows up in the Scriptures, whether as the Old Testament Hebrew yirah or the New Testament Greek phobos, it means fear. The Jews of the Old Testament and the Christians of the New Testament understood that the fear of the Lord meant the fear of the Lord. I've shared this with you before, but many times when people hear our story about this parish coming from the Anglican Church into the Catholic Church, very frequently someone will say to me, boy, it probably took a lot of courage on your part to do that, didn't it? And my response is always, oh no, <laughs> oh no, you don't understand. I had an undeniable sense and understanding that God was calling us to do that. And it took no courage at all because I fear God more than I fear man. When the book of Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the implication is that this kind of fear provides the right perspective on who God is, namely, God, <laughs> and who I am not, namely, God. It's the fear expressed when Isaiah proclaimed, woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord, the King of, of hosts or of St. Peter telling Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's the fear of the Lord. 
It's the kind of holy dread and reverential awe that does and should sometimes cause us to be broken and overwhelmed in the presence of our awesome, majestic, unfathomable God. Secondly, Joshua admonishes the Israelites to serve God in sincerity and faithfulness. Serving God is a fundamental responsibility of the believer, stemming from our acknowledgement of his lordship over our lives. The Baltimore Catechism taught us that God's purpose in creating us was to know, love, and serve him in this life and to be happy with him in the next. So a person serves that which is Lord to him or her. This is a very common theme, both in the teachings of Jesus and of the New Testament writers. Jesus said, for example, in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will love the one and hate the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. St. Paul reminded the Thessalonians how they had turned from idols to serve the living God. And the author of Hebrews speaks of how the blood of Christ can cleanse our conscience from dead works in order to serve the living God. Implicit in the idea of serving God, of course, is the principle of obedience. We serve God most effectively and most faithfully by conforming our will to His will, whatever it involves and whatever the cost. And brothers and sisters, we are rapidly moving into a time when there will be a cost, a great cost, I believe, connected to our service of God. Make no mistake about it. Thirdly, Joshua tells the Israelites to put away the gods which their fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Put them away. Now, when Joshua says to put them away, he isn't telling them to put them away in the sense that you would put away clean laundry or a child's toys. Rather, the word he uses is to put them away in the sense that one might put away a racehorse with a badly broken leg. That gives us some sense of how strongly the Lord, through Joshua, is commanding the Israelites to rid their lives of idols. Now, for us who are not primitive, nomadic, Mideastern tribes, but modern, reasonably sophisticated, and technologically advanced Westerners, idolatry is still a problem, just in different forms. Where the ancients once made idols and graven images of animals and trees and stars and planets, 21st century Americans tend to do the same thing, only with wealth and position and status and possessions, with technology, sometimes even with sports and entertainment. And the fundamental principle is that anything that has a higher priority in your life that God has is an idol that you need to put away completely from your life. And so the Lord, through Joshua, has issued the challenge, a challenge which for you and me, living in the world we live in today, 
becomes an absolute prerequisite for our spiritual survival. Again, he says, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away your idols. And then Joshua says, we need to make a decision. You and I need to make a decision, a choice, but with an added dimension. He says, in effect, you do what you want to do. But here's what I and my family are going to do. Even if the entire nation of Israel had chosen to serve false gods, Joshua was absolutely unequivocally committed to remain faithful to the end, to the one true and living God. For Joshua, there was no question. It was a done deal. For us, it must be so as well. Through all the turbulence, the confusion, and the darkness of the times in which we are living, we must stay faithful to God in His church. And therefore, we must say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we must say with St. Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.